Thank you, praise team, for that wonderful music. It's, it's kind of fun to be sitting out here and watching rather than uh, hiding behind the drums like I usually do, but it's different. But no, thanks for this opportunity to share with you guys. And I had a couple people after the first service ask me if I was candidating for this new discipleship pastor position. And no, I'm not. Jay actually asked me if I would preach like four months ago. So though I think that would be an awesome job, who knows. But no, I'm not candidating. I'm just preaching. (laughs) Uh, In attempting to decide what to preach on today, I thought it might be appropriate since we just finished an awesome study on the book of Mark that Jay just wrapped up to circle back and take a little bit of a closer look at the man behind the writing of Mark's gospel, and that's the Apostle Peter. Now, we know that Mark was actually the one that put Quill to Papyrus and recorded Peter's eyewitness account, but in fact, he was recording the account or the record of the Apostle Peter for us to be preserved for us today. So let's start with Peter's name. Though Simon was his original name, we see him listed as by multiple different names in the text. Uh, Peter, which is in the Greek is Petra, means rock. He's also called Cephas, which is the Aramaic version of rock, and sometimes known as Simon Peter. And in other places we see him as Simon Barjona, which is Simon of Jonah or John, his dad. So we see him listed by several different names, but don't be confused. All of these names refer to the same guy, the apostle Simon Peter. Let's take a closer look at the man, Peter, and see what we can glean from studying his life and how he was affected by his time with Christ and ultimately the gospel. But first, we need to set a little background information around Peter. Who was this man? Where did he come from, and what was he like? John tells us that Simon was from Bethsaida in Galilee, which was a small fishing community located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. We should have a picture of that coming up. Maybe. Maybe not. There it is. Okay. So there's a map, Sea of Galilee over there on the left side, and on the right side is a a modern-day picture, actually, of that area where Peter would have been uh, living so many years ago. Pretty, Pretty nice area, green, rolling hills, really beautiful country over there, actually. Now, Mark tells us that at some point Simon moved to Capernaum, And 1 Corinthians 9.5 fills in some more detail about his life, adding that he was married and that his mother-in-law actually lived with he and his wife. Now, the text does not specifically tell us that Peter did have children. However, in other biblical accounts, when a woman did not have children, it specifically does say that. So we we can read between the lines a little bit and say that there's a likely chance that Peter and his wife did have children, though the text does not specifically affirm that. Simon Peter's dad was a guy named John, hence the name Simon Bar-Jonah or John-Jonah. Different texts have it differently. They're very, pretty much the same name. John's a derivative of Jonah. Scholars note that Simon, the name given to him by his dad, was a pretty common name there in the first century. Now, John 1 t- t- tells us that Peter's brother was Andrew, who was a disciple of John the Baptist, and that it was actually Peter's brother Andrew who first introduced Simon to Christ. So Andrew being a disciple of John the Baptist, naturally he was pointed by John the Baptist to Christ and he brought his brother along with him. By trade, Simon Peter was a commercial fisherman. His family owned several fishing vessels and we see in Luke 5 that they were in a partnership, a fishing partnership with Zebedee and his sons James and John. And James and John, as you recall, uh, also went on to become apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, most likely, Simon's father handed down this skill set of commercial fishing to him, as it was very common in that day for a father to pass his business down to his sons. Note the relationship of the father Zebedee to his son, James and John. And we can look around us today and see that that's very common in, in our world here. We have, we're a very agricultural community, and I mean, how many fourth, fifth generation farmers do we have even right here amongst us? So you can kind of correlate that to the fishing thing that was going on back then. So fishing in that region and time was a vital part of the economy, and it was a difficult, sometimes dangerous, yet quite lucrative and rewarding job, similar to farming here. The family fishing operation there on the Sea of Galilee likely consisted of several fishing vessels working together as a fleet to go out and bring in the fish. Now John 21 records the fact that Peter and the others that were fishermen of of Jesus' disciples actually returned to that profession following Christ's death on the cross. Now, the biblical record also gives us quite a bit of insight into Peter's personality. He seems to have been, had a propensity towards impulsive behavior, and he would oftentimes speak or act out quite brashly without really weighing the consequences of what he was saying or doing. Some have said that Peter was the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. Tyron, thanks for, uh, thanks for that one. I thought it's very appropriate, especially considering what the Bible tells us about Peter's speech and behavior. So based on what the text tells us, we can see that Peter was a typical blue-collar, hard-working guy. He was probably a brawny, stout type of man who could be counted on to get the job done, given the hard manual labor that he endured day in and day out. If I'm thinking about Peter, I kind of envision maybe a first-century version of like Brent Croker with a beard and some hair, uh, big, strong guy, or maybe a Charles Reed, you know, linebacker type that, uh, that can get out there and get it done. So next time you talk to one of those guys, think, hey, I wonder if this is what Peter was like. It's a good chance it was. So now that we've got a better picture of who Simon the man likely was, let's take a look at how his life changed radically upon meeting the Messiah face to face. That brings us to our first point, the rock called. Your key, key verse here, there's actually a couple of them, John 1, 40 through 42, and Matthew 4, 18 through 20. John 1, 40 through 42 records Simon's initial counter with Christ. So let's go ahead and read that passage. John, the son of Zebedee, writes, starting in chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, a little bit of a better translation of verse 42, where it says Jesus looked at him, can be translated that Jesus gazed intently at him. It was following this soul-penetrating gaze from the Son of God that Simon's name was immediately changed to Peter, or Rock. Now, Jesus had not yet officially called Simon into full-time ministry with him. That would actually happen several months later. But he was already at this initial meeting with the apostle, preparing Peter for the leadership role that he would have in the church and among the disciples that he had been providentially born to fulfill. We can only imagine Peter's thoughts upon meeting Christ for the first time and immediately being given this new name, a name that was rich with meaning and prophetic 
stuff that just he didn't have in his old name. His old name was simple, it was common, but Peter, Cephas the Rock, this was a very rich name. It pointed towards the significant leadership role that he would have among the disciples and the early church. Now, sometime after Peter's initial calling by this new name, in Matthew 4, 18 through 20, so our second key passage, we, we read about Jesus' calling of Simon Peter into full-time discipleship. Let's read the Matthew text again. That's Matthew four eighteen through 20. It reads like this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, he'd already given him that name, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So what we see is Simon and his brother out doing their thing, fishing, and Jesus calls them. And what do they do? We see the text says that they immediately, immediately left their nets and followed Christ, leaving their career behind, their lucrative fishing career behind. So though the disciple did not know it at this time, Christ calling on him meant that he would be the preeminent leader, not only among the disciples, but for the early church as well. And close analysis of the biblical record provides several clues to support the fact that Peter was a leader among Christ's followers. For example, whenever Jesus' disciples are listed by name in Scripture, and you can find those lists of all the disciples' names in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1, they all contain those lists, Peter's name consistently appears at the front of the list. Now, placement of Peter's name at the front is significant because he wasn't actually the first disciple called by Christ, but he is the one that is listed first in these names. That's a significant textual clue. Also, Peter repeatedly emerges as the spokesperson for Christ's disciples. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the time that Jesus asked his 12 apostles who people said that he, Christ, was. Now, all three records agree on the fact that it was Peter who spoke for the group. They didn't, he asked the group, but Peter is the one that served as their spokesperson and actually responded to Christ. Now, Peter also is, is, is recorded to have replied for the group when Christ asks them, or when Christ predicts his own death on the cross. Peter speaks up at that time, too, and is the representative for the group. We also know from history that Peter became the preeminent leader for the early church, something we'll explore in depth here in a little bit. So we can see that Christ's calling on Peter involved not only this significant name change for the man, but the calling of responsibility to lead as well, both among the disciples and for the early church. So we want to point to the rock crushed. The key verse here is Mark 14, 66 through 72. If you really think about it, Peter was actually reprimanded or crushed by Christ on multiple occasions. The the text gives us several times where Peter is reprimanded by Christ. In fact, no one else in the Gospels or in the New Testament as a whole seems capable of eliciting such negative emotional response from Jesus as Peter. Uh, Nobody else gets yelled at as much as Peter by by Jesus. We see in Peter the full range of human emotional experience, from brash boldness and courageous bravery to weak-minded fear and even cowardly denial. But we also see in Peter a deep, desperate need for repentance, humility before Christ, and a devoted followership of the Messiah, and ultimately submission of his will to that of Christ. 
One interesting occasion where we can observe Peter being chastised by Christ, like we've talked about, is found in Mark 8. Peter brashly reprimands Jesus for predicting his, Christ's, death on the cross and subsequent burial. And so he, he reprimands Christ. Now, Jesus responds sharply to Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, and pointing out Peter's lack of ability to see things God's way. Now, it's important to note at this point that Jesus is not assigning another new name to Peter. He's not assigning him the name Satan. He's, he's called him Rock, Peter, Cephas. That is Peter's new name. But what he is saying, he's identifying the fact that Peter is creating a stumbling block for Christ along his journey to the cross. And he's saying, Peter, you're, you're, you're a stumbling block before me, just like Satan is trying to keep me from the cross. So are you. Get behind me. I don't have time for this. Now, on other occasions, Peter actually angered or disappointed Christ. Again, emotions not noted in the text as being evoked by the other disciples. But Peter's final crushing blow came during his display of cowardice in the face of potential persecution and his denial of Christ in the courtyard following Jesus' arrest. Now, it wasn't that long ago that we actually read this passage, Mark 14, 66 through 72, as Jay was unfolding uh, the Gospel of Mark for us. But this is really key to seeing Peter's being crushed by Christ. Let's go ahead and read that. Mark 14, starting in 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And it says he broke down and wept. So this this scene is recorded in all four Gospels. This single event in Peter's life broke him completely. He was crushed by the weight of what he had done, his cowardice, his denial of his his very Savior, his Messiah, the man he'd been following. The rock had been crushed to his very core at the realization that he had betrayed his Lord. Christ had to show Peter that even he, the great leader of the disciples, stood on equal ground before the feet of the Lord, along with everyone else in his sin and his broken humanity. So in summary, on this point of Peter being crushed, we see that he was as fallible as any man. He embodied a wide range of emotions and characteristics, just like all of us here today. But God was able to use all of Peter, both good and bad, ultimately for his glory. Let's move to our next point, point number three, the rock constructed. We've looked at Peter called, we've looked at him crushed. Now we're going to see how Christ reconstructs him into the man that he needs to be. Key verse here is John 2, 21, sorry, John 21, 2 through 17. Now, following this thrice-uttered denial of Christ in the courtyard and Peter's subsequent brokenness, Peter basically disappears from the pages of Scripture. He's just not, there's nothing about him until we get to this this passage in John. So before we read this, I want to set the stage a little bit. You know, Christ has died, 
He's been buried. The disciples have heard rumors that he's been resurrected. He appeared to the ladies, but they haven't seen him yet. They haven't, he hasn't appeared to them. They haven't seen him in person, at least this group, including Simon Peter. So they're depressed. You know, these guys are, are hanging out. They have nobody to follow now. They're just depressed. Let's pick up in uh, John 21, verse 2. Text reads like this. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. So we got a bunch of commercial fishermen sitting around depressed and despondent. Peter, leader that he was, stands up and says, guys, this is terrible. Let's go fishing. I'm going fishing. And they followed suit and off they went. Unfortunately, though, they get to the boat and they're on an all-night fishing trip and it gets even worse because they don't catch anything. They've wasted all their time and energy and their resources going on a fishing trip and they don't catch anything. So their depression, I would imagine, gets even worse. (laughs) But let's keep on reading. Picking up in verse 4, it says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. So typical Peter behavior, right? They just finally get all this stuff in the boat, and uh, John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, points out, hey, that's the Lord. And Peter, excited as he can be, throws on his swimsuit and jumps in the water and starts swimming for sure. I mean, this is, uh, is kind of what we would expect out of this guy. He's excited. He's excited to go see his Lord again. He's not yet been reconciled to Christ. The last time that they had interaction was there at Peter's denial. That's what's hanging over his head. So he could not get to Christ any quicker. But after the, so to set the scene up, we're going to skip forward to verse 15, but realize the boat makes it to shore, they bring all the fish out, and they, they prepare a breakfast. So picking up in verse 15, text says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Jesus to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter replied back, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Jesus to Peter, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Peter to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So though Peter was ecstatic to see his Lord again, this is still a man who, like we said, has not been restored to fellowship with his master. This is the first encounter that they have following Peter's cowardly denial in the courtyard. But what we see in this passage is Christ actually offering forgiveness and a restored relationship to his disciple. But he does this in a very impactful way. Remember in the courtyard at the trial, how many times did Peter deny Christ? Three, right? Three denials. Well, here, Jesus basically offers Peter the chance to affirm his love for Christ three times. So one refutation of his denial, one affirmation of love per refutation of Peter's 
uh, denial of Christ. So we see this whole and complete kind of restoration or, or redoing of what he had done in the courtyard. But not only this, Christ also affirms Peter's role as leader in the church and as leader among the disciples. He says to him, after each time Peter says, yes, I love you, yes, I love you, he says to him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. So not only is he restoring him to relationship, is Christ restoring Peter to relationship with himself, he's affirming his importance and his role going forward. In this powerful and very meaningful way, Christ begins to reconstruct this crushed, and crumbled rock of a man into the unwaveringly stalwart, steadfast, and strong leader that we encounter in the book of Acts and then in the rest of the New Testament. It's important to note here, though, what Christ was not constructing Peter into. He was not constructing Peter into the first pope. He was never, Peter was never portrayed as being greater than any of the others or possessing some sort of special status or higher level of apostolicity. The text is very clear on that. Jesus' proclamation in Matthew 16, 18 that he would build his church upon this rock cannot and should not be interpreted as Christ establishing a papacy through Peter, as, as our Catholic friends would believe. The text reads like this, again in Matthew sixteen eighteen. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now realize, this is one of the most controversial texts in the New Testament. So proper delving into the depths of the meanings of this text and all the nuances and, and misinterpretations and intricacies of this text, we can't, we can't treat it with all that at this point. We just don't have the time for that. But suffice it to say here that Roman Catholic doctrines of papalism, apostolic succession, and Petrine primacy, derived from this passage specifically, have been clearly and consistently rejected and refuted by Protestants since even before the Reformation. They're clearly heretical teachings that stand in direct contradiction to doctrines like the priesthood of all believers, Christ as head of the church, and even true Trinitarian theology. In other words, Through the apostle Peter, Christ was not constructing a papal structure for his church. And if you maybe happen to be a Roman Catholic or have that background and you have questions about this or you disagree with me, let's come talk after the service. I'd love to engage in conversation about that. But it's important to note that because there's a lot of people that do have confusion on this matter. Now, unfortunately, and mostly in reaction to the Roman Catholic uh, quasi-worship of the man Peter, the Protestant tendency has been to offer a more significant level or more significance and attention to the Apostle Paul over Peter. However, Christ clearly used Peter to build the church. But the key lies in asking the question, whose church is it really? Is it Peter's? No, certainly not. Though Peter is the rock and he is a pillar of the church, Christ was clear that he himself is the one and only true cornerstone in the biblical text consistently supports that. Without Christ, there is no church. There is no meaning at all to church. It is because of His, Christ's, wonderful, redemptive, and salvific work on the cross that the church even exists or has meaning. And this good news, this gospel, is something Peter knew and understood all too well. It had changed his life completely to the point that he was consumed by it, and it drove him to become the catalyst that pushed the early church on in its very unstable and infantile years. 
So Christ, we see that Christ constructed Peter into a man through his forgiveness and his love and his reaching back out to Peter. He constructed him into this man who wound up teaching, preaching, healing, leading, and using whatever gifts God had imparted on him in his passionate desire to see the church grow and mature as the preeminent leader that he became. So now that we've seen Peter called, crushed, and constructed, we'll move on to our fourth point, last point there in your outline. It's the rock consumed. The key verse there is Acts 2, 14 through 40. This is the story of Pentecost. The importance of the Acts at Pentecost cannot be overstated. This was God the Holy Spirit coming down and indwelling believers, just as he had promised so many years before. He had promised to send his comforter to humanity, and at Pentecost, that's when that happens. But at Pentecost, we also see Peter emerge once again as a key leader in the proceedings there. Uh, Though time does not permit, we read the entirety of the passage. It's a pretty long text. It's basically Peter's first sermon. Let's go ahead and start in 14, then we'll, we'll pick up again in 36. So in Acts 2, verse 14, we see this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So then in verses 15 through 35, and I would definitely encourage you to read that on your own. Read it several times. It's a a phenomenal and exquisite presentation of the gospel. The first real gospel presentation that we have in the Word, and Peter, Peter gives it. But let's skip forward to verse 36 and see what the results of Peter's message were. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now here in Acts, we see a very different Peter. A Peter who, upon fully experiencing Christ's total and complete forgiveness, in conjunction with his wonderful and unfathomable love, has become wholly consumed with telling others about Christ and spreading the gospel. Pentecost, again, was when the Lord fulfilled his promise to come and indwell his people with the Holy Spirit. So Peter was also now consumed and guided by the power of the Holy Spirit from this time of Pentecost onward. As we trace Peter's life further in history, we continually see him fulfill his role as the foundational rock in the early church. Acts 1 tells us it was Peter who proposed that Judas' vacant slot be filled following that disciple's suicide, and Peter, Peter proctored those proceedings. Then Acts 3 and 9 record Peter's exercising more gifts by healing a crippled man and actually raising a guy from the dead. Acts 4, we see his brilliant speech before the Sanhedrin. Remember the Sanhedrin, we've spent a lot of time as we were going through Mark learning about who the Sanhedrin were. And in Acts 4, we see Peter laying out the gospel for the Sanhedrin, that body of religious leaders. Acts 5 tells us 
It was Peter who was responsible for calling Ananias and Sapphira to reckoning for their deceitful ways. And if you recall that story in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira had been deceitful, and they, the, the leaders of the church called them in, called them out, and they refused to repent, and God took their lives. So Peter's leading role also in the doctrine-defining and precedent-setting Jerusalem council is recorded in Acts 15. This was pivotal in the formation of the early church. This council affirmed that faith in Christ is the only means to salvation as it soundly refuted the heretical works-based teaching of the Judaizers. It firmly established for the young early church the fact that faith in Christ alone is the only means to salvation. In all of these accounts... Peter can be seen as living out his calling of unashamed and bold leadership within the church and among the disciples. Now, regarding Peter's last days, the accounts of Origen, Tertullian, and Clement of Alexandria all confirm that he was martyred in Rome under the tyrannical rule of the emperor Nero. Now, tradition has it that when faced with crucifixion, Peter actually requested that he be crucified upside down because he did not see himself as being worthy of, to be crucified in the same manner that his Lord Jesus Christ was. So what have we learned from this brief look at the life of the Apostle Peter? Well, we see God take this normal, hard-working, kind of good old boy fisherman from Galilee, and through the transforming power of his son Jesus Christ, call him, crush him, construct him, and then consume him with the gospel. Christ used all of Peter, both the good and the bad, in fulfilling his purposes and ultimately for Christ's own glory. This man became the primary leader and spokesman for Jesus' disciples and also the preeminent leader of the early church. And he played vital roles at Pentecost and the Jerusalem Council. He went on later in life to travel as a missionary all over that part of the world and ultimately died a martyr's death for his faith and passion for Christ. So what do we do with this information? Knowledge alone does not elicit change. I think we have to ask ourselves some questions about how we can relate to what we've observed in studying Peter's life. First question. It's more of a statement and a question. We're all called by Christ. If you're hearing this today, you're called by Christ. What will we do with that calling? Second. Will we allow ourselves to be crushed by the weight of the gospel of Christ, by the weight of our sin and the weight of how that affected God? Will we allow his truth to lay bare our sin and the terrible consequences that it brings to be brought low before the feet of Christ? Will we, like Peter, allow Christ to then reconstruct us into his own image, laying down ourselves for the gospel and Christ's truth? Fourth, will we allow the Holy Spirit to consume us for the sake of Christ, just as Peter did, and be used by him for his purposes and his glory in whatever sphere of influence he's placed us? So where do you find yourself today as you look at your life in light of this little quick character sketch on Peter about what we've learned today? As you ask those questions, I'd encourage self-introspection. I know as I've gone through this and and looked at Peter's life, it's caused me to ask myself a lot of these questions, and, and uh, it's eye-opening what I find out when I really look at myself. So be honest with yourself as you ask you, yourself these questions. Now, if anyone here today has any questions about the gospel, about what you've heard, if this is the first time you've, you've ever had this presented to you, and you're 
really unsure what's going on and you want to know more, please come find me or one of the elders or someone who you know has a good handle on this stuff and can actually step you through it a little bit better. Or maybe you've heard this before. You're not new to the gospel, but this is the first time that you've ever actually experienced God's calling on your life and you need to do something about that. I'll be up here at the front afterwards. You can come and talk to me or find one of the elders or, again, someone who you know is a strong believer and has a handle on this, and we'd love to step you through it in more detail and just celebrate with you. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time you've given us to gather together here, Lord, to open your word to hear what you have uh, to say to us through the look at, at uh, the life of your, your servant Peter, God. He was a man just like us who was, who was broken, he was fallible, he messed up a lot. But God, you still use the guy for your purposes. And God, we pray that you would just do the same in our hearts and in our lives as we uh, fail miserably day after day. God, I pray that you would continue to build us up, to construct us, and to just use us for your purposes, Lord. I thank you for all those who are here, Lord. I thank you for the, the fact that you've given us this chance to gather here without fear of persecution. Lord, we know that there's folks all over the world that don't have that. God, we lift them up today as they meet in places all over the, all over the globe. I pray that you would protect them and look after them. Thank you as we go, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would just use us for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.